Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. All right, well, good morning, Mercy Church. How are you doing? It is good uh, to be with you this morning. If I have not had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Scott, and I'm one of the pastors here. I'd also like to welcome our Providence Road campus. Thank you so much uh, for joining us this morning. And also, if you're joining with us online because you can't be here, we're thankful that you're able to do this and watch and worship with us online. It is so good to be with you this morning. Uh, As we start, um, I wanted us to do a little bit of an exercise, a mind exercise for a moment. I want you to go back and imagine, I want you to go back and imagine with me in your mind as if you were actually sitting with among the people of the first century church in Philippi. You're seeing this local church, and they've been faithfully laboring as a church for a better part of 12 years. You see that they've been suffering for their faith. They've faced opposition, infighting, and trials, but you also see that they've had great triumphs. This is a great church. They've seen the lost come to faith, the kind of people that they thought would never have trusted in Jesus. And you see how these people have persevered in the midst of really difficult circumstances. This 12-year-old church has seen it all at this point, and now they show up on a normal Sunday morning, to he- and then they hear from the leadership that the Apostle Paul, their great hero, wrote their church a personal letter. And this letter was going to be read in its entirety to the congregation. I mean, can you imagine it? It's Paul. It's the man that they've been praying for while he's been in prison. And he wrote them, he wrote us a personal letter. The excitement in the room would have been felt for sure. This is the great apostle. And he wrote them a letter from uh, from prison. Then imagine the people sitting and listening to this letter being read aloud and they're locked in. They hang on every word as they learn to live what it means to be a follower of Christ from this letter. They hear about his imprisonment and how his imprisonment has led to the gospel being preached more boldly. They hear that he, you know what, he wasn't sure if he was going to get out of jail this time, but for him to live was Christ and to die was gain. They heard that even though they feel the brokenness of Philippi where they live, Paul encourages them that their citizenship isn't there. It's not in Philippi. It's not here. It's in heaven. And that their present suffering doesn't mean that they were doing something wrong. In fact, quite the opposite. Suffering was granted to them on behalf of Christ. And they learned about Christian humility from this letter and not seeking their own interest. He taught them that their ultimate goal in life should be to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and that they should take fellowship in his sufferings. And last week we learned 
that they needed to be gritty in their obedience in light of a sovereign God who ruled and reigned and that their home was not here, but it was resting in heaven waiting for them. So they're hearing all these amazing truths and then they get to the end of this letter and Paul transitions his tone and he starts to shepherd this church. He's going to address a bunch of things that Christians deal with when they're part of a church family, all right? So that's what we're kind of talking about, stuff that Christians deal with when you're part of a church family. And Paul knows that when you're part of a church family, especially when you've part, been part of that church family for a while, things can get difficult. Things can knock individuals and entire bodies off of course, off its course if they're not careful, if they're not mindful. There are things that you and I deal with that make it difficult for us to stay on course. Mercy Church, this is an important and timely word for us. Paul's going to address stuff that we deal with. Deal with that right here at Mercy. Now, this may not be a comfortable word, but it's an important and it's a timely word. Mercy Church, let's level with ourselves. We're a seven-year-old church. The honeymoon uh, phase of church planting has worn off. We've been here long enough for relationships to get difficult, for you to have been sinned against or for you to have sinned against someone else. We've been here long enough for mission drift to happen occasionally. And like Philippi, Paul is warning us, to, or, or he's charging us to stay the course. Paul's closing this letter to the church who have committed themselves to be on mission together. And right here, right now, towards the end of this letter, he's going to shepherd them through it. Paul will gently but directly address some of the issues that this church is dealing with and how they can move forward. Church, we need to hear this. And just like it did with the church in Philippi, the Apostle Paul and the Holy Spirit are going to get all up in our business for a little bit. But if we take this word to heart, it will transform our body. So what I want to do in honor of God's word at both campuses, if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word, we are going to be in Philippians 4, verses 1 through 9, and I'm going to read it in its entirety. 4, verse 1. So then... My dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and my crown. In this manner, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I urge Eudia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are written in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure and lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell, think on these things. Do what you have heard and received from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. Amen.
You can be seated. The first thing I think that the Lord wants us to see from our brother Paul and in this letter is that as a church, we need to stand firm in the Lord. As a church, we need to stand firm in the Lord. Right away in verse one, we see Paul addressing this church that he loves by tenderly connecting them to what he said previously. So in verse one, he says, so then, so he's connecting what he's about to say with what he just finished saying. What he said in the previous chapter was that it didn't, he didn't want them to give up because their citizenship was in heaven. What they were going through was difficult and he wanted them to be gritty in their obedience. And no matter what was happening in their church or in their lives personally, Paul wanted them to persevere because this wasn't their home. But oftentimes we can make it feel like this is all there is, but there is a reality that is more glorious, more amazing, more powerful than anything. And Paul wanted to connect that idea to what he was saying. So he said, in light of that reality, so then my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and my crown in this manner stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. He tells them to stand firm. That was his imperative, his encouragement, his command to them was to stand firm. He wants them to stick with it, to stay on mission, to never give up. But how were they to do this? Well, he tells them, he says, stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. He wants them to endure, and then he gives them the source by which this endurance comes from. It only comes from the Lord, and this is a good reminder for us because our strength doesn't come from within ourselves, amen? It doesn't come from our wisdom to fix things, our pedigree, the amount of times, or the amount of time that we've been a follower of Jesus. No, it comes from our union with Christ. The phrase in the Lord here is said three times in these nine verses alone. Verse two, agree in the Lord. Verse four, rejoice in the Lord. Verse seven, the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus in the Lord. Paul's challenge to them to stand firm, you know, and he was challenging them to stay firm and he wasn't telling them to do that and to endure in their own strength. They need the Lord. What Paul is asking them to do and what he will ask them to do and ask us to do in the following verses, church, this will require effort. But he's telling them that they will need the power of God to do it. The church of Philippi was tired in their laboring because they were dealing with a lot. The city of Philippi was a big city and there were no end to the problems. The same is true for us here in Charlotte. Our vision is to see a gospel awakening here. That's a big idea, to see a gospel awakening in this city of Charlotte that's carried to the ends of the earth. And one of the reasons that we made this our vision is because there is no possible way that we can do this in our own strength. God wouldn't even allow it. We can never do it by ourselves, but guess what, God can. He can help us, and we need him to stand firm in the Lord and not to waver despite all of the brokenness that's in each one of us, in our church, and in our city, and in our world. 
So what Paul's going to do is he's going to give us some practical ways to do this, to stand firm in the verses following. But before he does that, he is going to address a real threat in this Philippian church, and he's going to address it in a super direct manner. Verse two, I urge Judea and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side along with Clement and the rest of my coworkers whose names are written in the book of life. So I think what the Lord wants us to see as a church is that as a church, we need to stand firm in our relationships. We need to stand firm in our relationships. Okay, zoom back in. You're in this moment, right? You're in this moment. This letter's being read aloud. The people, Judea, Syntyche, sitting right there. And then all out of nowhere, Paul mentions them by name. <laughs> awkward, right? Yeah. Super awkward. But as this congregation is sitting there, Paul encourages and challenges these women in their walks with Jesus and, and these women, they were sitting right there. Apparently, um, these two women were in some kind of a disagreement with each other. We don't exactly know what this agreement was, but we are able to see a few things here. Paul highlights the fact that these women have co-labored with him at his side to plant this church and to do ministry. These women were prominent figures in this church. And Paul knew that this argument was a distraction from the mission and it needed to stop. This is not good for, his, for this church, and Paul wanted to address it immediately. But look at how he did it. He did it very specifically. He said, I urge you, Judea, and I urge you, Syntyche. He does it individually. I urge you, Judea, and I urge you, Syntyche. Well, what is he urging them to do? He's pleading with them to agree in the Lord. You see that? That's what he's getting at here. By agree, he wants them to be of the same mind and of the same heart. He's urging them to have, the right, to have right attitudes towards each other so that they can continue to labor together in this local church. Because right now, it's causing too much division. You know, church, this happens to us too, right? This is some of the most painful things that can happen at a church. These women have served at this church and been members here for a long time, and now they're in a fight. Y'all, relationships in church can get hard sometimes, right? It can get hard. You know, you're part of the same community group for years, and then you look up, and, and you're in an argument with someone that you would have called a friend or, or even a mentor. You know, now it's awkward. You know, you avoid each other on Sundays, and every week that goes by, the tension gets bigger and bigger, and then you start to wonder in your mind. Your mind starts scrambling in a bunch of different places, and you start to wonder. I wonder if it might be better for me just to go to another community group or or maybe even another church on, on bad days. You know, the feeling of betrayal or disappointment from conflict with a friend or, or a family member here in the church, it hurts so bitterly, doesn't it? It hurts so bitterly, but Paul calls them back and he urges them to agree in something he knows they will agree about, he, to agree in the Lord. And maybe you've been there before, or maybe you're there right now, and you need to hear the words of Paul that you may not be able to agree about everything. You may not be able to agree about all of the things, 
But you can agree about one thing. You can agree about the most important thing. You can agree about the gospel. You can agree that the Lord, that you can agree in the Lord that even though there's a major conflict, that God is good, that he saved both of us and we get this proper perspective that we can lay these things aside for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the mission. To agree in the Lord after a major conflict with a friend or a mentor, it can only come from imitating the humility of Jesus who gave up his rights for the good of others. To resolve conflict, we need the attitude of Christ. It's only because of the Lord's power the commonality with the Lord and because their willingness to submit to God that these women or you and I will be able to resolve our differences. It will take real humility and it's going to take gospel bravery. And you might've missed this as we're going through, through this uh, verse three. I know I missed it the first time I read it. Uh, so go back with me to verse three. It says, yes, I also ask you true partner, to help these women who have contended uh, for the gospel at my side. So Paul appeals to the church to help them to agree in the Lord. He appeals to the church to help them with this. I ask you, true partner, to help these women. By partner, he's meaning this local body. He wants them and for us to see that conflict resolution, it's actually a corporate activity. Since sinful infighting is harmful to the body, it will also at times take the body to help bring unity. We need to help each other to agree in the Lord. If we see two people who are not in step with one another, we need to encourage them to seek reconciliation. Jesus said that this right here is at the very heart of what it means to follow him. In Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, verse 9, he says this. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, sons of God, that's not a justification or a salvation statement. What he's saying is, that's more of a title. When you make peace, you are living according to the title of sons of God. And in order, to be, in order for there to be peace, you have to go, I have to go, we have to go and make peace. Peace maker, we have to be like this. Infighting inside the church, y'all, you know this. I don't have to explain this to you on how destructive it is to the body, but also for the watching world. I mean, what does it say about our faith if we can't agree in the Lord in the midst of petty disagreement? A practical way to do this, if you're wondering, even though some of y'all might be sweating in the moment. <laughs> a practical way to do this is by constantly pointing other people to talk to one another instead of them talking to you about all those things. A great way to be a peacemaker is to continuously encourage brothers and sisters who might be at odds with each other or might have improper attitudes towards one another to just get together and sit down and talk about it. We need to stamp out any threat to disunity. Why? Because the enemy laughs every time. He laughs every time when, when you and I bicker, when we argue, when there's things that are petty and we're being petty and, and not extending forgiveness. Unity in the church family is important. 
It is vital. John 17 says that that is the greatest apologetic to the world, our love for one another. My prayer is that we as a church stick it to the enemy and we do it by fighting for peace and take on this title of peacemaker by helping to bring peace to every sphere of our church and our city. And as we move on to verse four, we see Paul pointing the church towards a proper perspective. So look at verse four with me. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything in prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's, that's amazing. Here's the third thing I think that the Lord wants us to see as a church and to do as a church is that we need to stand firm and zoom out. We need to stand firm by zooming out. And here's what I mean by zooming out. Paul here, you know, he's hearing from church leaders all about what's happening in this local church and they're facing a lot. The pressure is on. Ministry was hard. They're facing individual struggles and pain and conflict. And the thing that they need more than anything in the world is a proper perspective. Oftentimes we need that perspective change as well. We need to zoom out to recenter our hearts and our minds towards a proper perspective on our circumstances. Because when we don't have a proper perspective, a lot of times we can isolate or we can allow unhelpful thought patterns to go unchecked by ourselves or unchecked by anybody else. And it can be really difficult Sometimes we can get hyper-focused on ourselves and miss out on the beauty of the Lord and his activity in the midst of your circumstances, but because you're looking too much at yourself in the midst of your circumstances, you miss out on what God's actually doing. Church, this is really important. We need to be able to zoom out because when we lose our perspective, we can't see properly. And we don't see things for as they really are. So what Paul tells us to do, the antidote for this is he tells us to rejoice. To rejoice always. And then he says it again in case we forgot the first time. He says to, I say it again, rejoice. The book of Philippians is often called the, ver, uh, the, the, the book of joy. In 104 verses in this book, Paul mentions joy or rejoicing 16 times. Paul is telling them who to rejoice in, in the Lord, and then he tells them when they are to rejoice, always. And then he tells them again, rejoice again. Paul knew that the Philippians, like us, we would struggle to maintain joy. By a raise of hands at both campuses, how many of you struggle to maintain joy in your walk with Jesus? It's true. That's why I love this quote from George Mueller. He said this. He said, the first and great primary business every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. One of our big problems as sinful men and women is that our autopilot is broken. It is always set, our autopilot's always set towards selfishness, towards irritability and meeting the needs of our flesh, 
We don't wake up in the morning every day with our hearts warmed and just happy to, to walk with Jesus all the time. No, our hearts are cold. We need perspective. We need to be reminded of the gospel every day. That's why we seek to spend time and to abide with Christ. And that's just on a normal day. You add difficult circumstances to your lives, and man, we're going to need Christ so much more, right? Notice that Paul doesn't tell them to only rejoice when things are going well. He tells them to rejoice always. We need to do it when our circumstances are terrible, especially when our circumstances are terrible. Many people think that we can only have joy when you get what you desire, when God gives you what you ask for, but real joy comes when you actually realize what you get from God compared to what you actually deserve. We don't deserve good gifts. We don't deserve a relationship with a kind and gentle and generous God. We don't. Yet, Despite all of that, he gives us his greatest gift. He gave us the gospel. He gave us Jesus. Real joy comes from a proper perspective. And when you can't rejoice in your earthly circumstances because things are so hard, and I know, listen, I know some of you. I know that some of your circumstances are even hard to stomach. But what we need is we need to continue, even in the midst of that, to rejoice. And what we can do, even if our circumstances are terrible right now, and we can't find a darn thing to rejoice in, what, in our circumstance here, what we can do is we can rejoice about what our future circumstances will hold. This is not our home. Joy will come, but it only comes through Christ. Rejoicing, I want y'all to write this down. Rejoicing always, rejoicing always is how you prepare. Rejoicing always is how you prepare and cultivate a theology of suffering in your life. Rejoicing always is how you prepare and cultivate a theology of suffering in your life. Church, we are going to suffer. We will. Christ promised that we would. He actually promised it over and over again and over again. But unfortunately for us, for some reason, we continue to be shocked every time we're in suffering, even though he promised it. Let me be honest for a moment. And I want you to be honest as well. One of the things that can be really difficult for us when we receive a word like rejoice always in your circumstances, especially when it comes from a brother or sister that you feel like or that you know isn't really suffering at all, and it seems like they have it all, and, and you know what? We can become a little bitter about that. We can be a little petty. First, we need to receive their word because regardless of everything going right in their life, they're actually, it's still true. But second, it can be really difficult to hear this when we feel like people just, or, or people just don't feel like they can understand or they can't ever understand what we're actually walking through. And what's crazy about this command from Paul is that the people have nothing to say back to their sweet brother. They knew that this word was coming from a fellow sufferer. 
He wasn't being obtuse about their situation. He was demonstrating through this letter what it means to rejoice and serve the church even in the midst of being in a hole in the ground. Most likely Paul was writing in a tiny hole sitting in his urine and in his feces. Paul was acquainted with suffering. So whatever circumstances that they were in or that we were in, and he knew that their circumstances were bad, they knew that this word was coming from a great shepherd, a fellow sufferer. And he wasn't holding this over them like saying, hey guys, you know, figure it out. I have it way way worse than you. You have nothing to complain about. You're not in a hole sitting in your own poo, right? That's not your circumstance. But what I love about Paul and what we shouldn't do is Suffering is not a competitive sport. We shouldn't compete with our sufferings as if that's actually helpful. We shouldn't constantly be comparing. And what happens is that Paul, when we see what's going on with Paul here, is that Paul's joy came from the fact that he remembered what he was saved from. He hated Christ. Paul was a murderer and an idolater. His aim used to be to kill and arrest Christians, and now he's given his life to plant churches. It didn't matter to him if he was in a jail cell. Who cares? This is not his home. He had a proper perspective. Heaven awaits him. And as long as he had breath in his lungs, he was going to praise Jesus no matter the cost. No matter how he was treated, even when he was betrayed, even when he was shipwrecked, snake-bitten, hungry. Go on further, Philippians 4.13, it says that he can do all things through Christ who gives him strength. That verse was written to the church to help us to endure suffering. It's in the Bible to teach us uh, that we can be content no matter the circumstance. That verse isn't to write on your shoes in middle school, hoping that it would help me dunk a basketball. Well, guess what? I never did it. Mercy, we have a lot to rejoice over. Jesus has washed you. He has rescued you. He's given you a family here. We're not perfect. This family's not perfect. There's sin all over the place. I could just point around and there's sin everywhere. And guess what? You're not perfect. But what we can do is we can have a proper perspective and remember the gospel. And when we're rejoicing always, it's a testimony to the whole world. Look at verse five. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. As I was looking at this passage, um, this word graciousness, scholars say that this word is, is it's a difficult one to translate into our English. That's why in all of our you know, translations of the Bible, there's so many different words for, for this, for uh, graciousness. Uh, the CSB says graciousness, the ESV says reasonableness, the NASB says gentle spirit, NIV says uh, gentleness. I think the best way to think about it is that Paul is telling, Paul is saying is that we need to be self-controlled and show restraint in our interactions with one another. Graciousness is the opposite of being argumentative or self-seeking. When we, uh, but this only happens when we're rejoicing always, when we zoom out and have a proper perspective, we will be gracious people and a gracious church. 
Gospel people should be the hardest people on the planet to offend. Why? Because we've been forgiven of so much. How can we then turn around and not be gracious towards someone else? Especially our enemies. Paul adds more perspective language to this. He's saying, look, do this because the Lord is near. Paul again provides this perspective moment. Paul loves you and he wants you to, and he wants to provide you and provide Philippi with all that you need for your interactions inside and outside of the church. I don't know about you, I'm sure you feel this, but right now everything feels way too charged in our culture. You know, with news outlets and social media, you know, the the fringe extremists on whatever side get all the retweets and airtime, and all it does is inflame us and cause us to feel like we need to yell louder just to be heard. May that not be true of us. Not God's people. That can't be true of us. Let's not be known for hot takes. No, let's be known for gentle answers that turn away wrath. When we do this, when we pursue this perspective, we can even treat our enemies with kindness. Only perspective can do that. Only zooming out can do that. When we see what's actually true and who we were and who we are now, now we can be, show graciousness all over the place. Then Paul hits us again with another one. He says, don't worry about anything. Oh boy. Don't worry about anything. But in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In our day, it seems that people are struggling with worry or anxiety more than ever, and studies show this to be true. But let's remember right here, let's, we got to zoom back in for a moment, that this letter is primarily written to a church body, not to individuals. But most of the time when we read this, these kinds of letters, we only read it as to us and how we apply it and all that kind of stuff. But this is meant to be a corporate letter. So when Paul penned this, he was telling the church, hey, you church in Philippi, you don't worry about anything, corporate language. So we have to start applying it to the church and then we can apply it to ourselves. So remember, Paul's wanting them to zoom out and have perspective so that this church can stay on mission. They had a lot to worry about. There were internal, external threats. Paul's them, Paul tells them not to be frightened by their opponents in chapter 1, 28. They were worried about their church's finances in chapter 4, 19. There's plenty to be anxious about. And Paul knows that, they, they, that as a church, they had a battle on their hands. And guess what? Here at Mercy, I know we have worries and we are anxious on many things. In the rough draft of my sermon, I tried to write all the examples of what I could think of, of all the things that we worry about as a church, not let alone my own things. And it was so long that I had to cut it. It it was so long that I had to cut it. Paul knows that one of the greatest threats to any church is their ability to handle their worries and anxiety. Worry and anxiety, they are truly, they are joy killers. They suck the life out of everything 
It sucks the life out of even simple joys. I heard one pastor say that worry and anxiety is like carrying around an alarm, an alarm clock all day long that never shuts up. So Paul gives us, some of you are like, man, that does sound annoying. Uh, <laughs> Paul gives us this plan. And he tells us that the Lord wants us to come to him, even in the design of this verse. He tells us to pray and to petition him. Don't for a second move past that, that God tells us to pray, God. God tells us to pray and to petition him. That's a perspective moment. He tells us to do it with thanksgiving. Why? Because when you take your worries to the Lord while also thanking him, it changes how you pray. Our prayers go from foolish request to wise pleas to a good God. And look what happens when we do this. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. What Paul is trying to get us to see here in the church is that prayer must be primary. Prayer has to be primary. It's the antidote to worry. But what, ha what, ha what happens is that our prayer is too hurried. We need to be unhurried. We need to be mindful, consistent, constant, devoted. But if you're honest, and if I'm honest, it's not actually what our prayer life looks like, is it? Our prayers look more like drive-wise on the way to work. All right, Lord, help me out. I'll see you next time. That's usually what our prayer life looks like. It's panicked, it's hurried. It's not sitting and steeping in the goodness of God and then giving him our request. That's usually not what we do. So how can we expect the peace of God which surpasses all understanding when we're so darn hurried? Y'all, let's slow down and let's give our stuff to the Lord. And then it says here that he will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ. This is amazing. And as he guards our hearts and our minds, Paul encourages them to fill their minds. Verse eight, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, commendable, if there's any more excellence, if there's anything praiseworthy, dwell, think on these things and do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me and the God of peace will be with you. Here's the last thing that I think the Lord wants us to see as a church is that we need to stand firm in our thought life. We need to stand firm in our thought life. Paul wants us to fill our minds with praiseworthy things. It's common even in Eastern religions or, or even spiritualists to say that we need to empty our minds to find peace. But in that peace in the good life can only be found through emptying of negativity, emptying all the time. Christianity actually says the exact opposite. We need to fill our minds, but we need to fill it with the right stuff. We need to fill it the right way. That's why theology is important. We're all theologians, every single one of us, but here's the deal, we're either good ones or bad ones. And we need to spend time thinking about what is good, and, what, and when we think about what is good, those are the things that changes, us, that changes us. It informs and it warps our character. And Paul tells us to think on what is true, not things that are untrue. Whatever is honorable, not dishonorable. Whatever is just, not unjust. Pure, not impure. Whatever is lovely, not repulsive. We need to dwell on all things that are praiseworthy. 
We need to think on all of these things that are true. In Romans 12, it says something similar that we need to be transformed by the renewal of our what? Our minds. He says in Romans 8 that we need to set our minds on the things of the spirit. Why? Because our autopilot is broken. So we need to set our minds on the things that are good, on the things that are right. And many of us don't operate this way in our thought life. Unfortunately, we float. We float and then expect to become godly or expect to, um, to, to find peace or expect to find purpose, but we're not being mindful. We need to be thoughtful men and women to fill our minds on truth. And guess what? We need others to help us. Verse nine, Paul says that what you've learned and heard and received from me and seen in me and the peace of God will be with you. Paul tells them to imitate him. Church, listen, you need godly examples. Paul says, do what you've seen and heard from me. And some of us need to emulate others who have been doing this a little bit longer. So go ask them, hey, what are you reading? What is, what is God teaching you? What are you learning? Can you help me think through whatever? Don't float, find someone to help you. And if you don't know where to start, Start by doing this. Go up to someone that you admire and say, hey, I see your walk with Jesus and I, I really appreciate your walk with him. Can we get coffee sometime and I could just ask you some questions about blank, whatever, whatever you have going on? I'm sure they're gonna say yes. And if they don't, tell me. Uh, I'm just fine. Um, well, as we close, church, this is an important word for us. Challenging, yes, full of hope, Yes. Church, we need this. We're in such a pivotal time, a pivotal moment in our church where it would be easy to get off course. It'd be easy to infight because it's hard. It's easy. We have so much history together that it can be hard to just keep going. But we need to depend on him. We need to stand firm in our relationships. We need proper perspective. And we need to fill our hearts and our minds with what is true. And then I love the end of verse nine. I'll close with this. Earlier it says the peace of God will come to you. What this says is the God of peace will be with you. Church, I want the God of peace with me. I want the God of peace with us. Let me pray. Father, we love you. God, we are thankful. Lord, for your goodness towards us. Lord, as we read this passage, Lord, we see and we know, God, it's easy to, to waffle and not to stand firm. Lord, we know what you've called us to as a church. Lord, we want to make disciples who love God, who love each other, and who love our world. But what happens, God, is we lose perspective. Lord, we, we, we cease to continue to stand firm in our relationships. God, at times we can let our thought life run, run awry and think about all sorts of things rather than what is true. God, we need to rejoice. God, help us to rejoice. Holy Spirit, help us. We need it. God, we need you. Lord, we pray on this day, on this date, God, that 
we would be a church that would stand firm no matter our circumstances, no matter what's going on with us as a church or with us individually, God help us to stand firm and to have perspective. Christ, we love you and we commit all of this to you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.